Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you would, please take out the Word of God and turn in it in the New Testament to the Gospel of Matthew and chapter number 1. Now, if you don't happen to have a Bible with you, there should be one under a chair in front of you. You could take that Bible out in the back portion of it, turn to page number one, and you would be right at Matthew chapter one. Now, as we begin today, I I want to ask you to do something for me. I want you to think, uh, some of you are saying, I don't know if I'm ready to do that yet today, but I want you to think about your first Christmas tree, your first Christmas tree. It may have been the first Christmas tree that you remember as you were growing up. It may be the first Christmas tree that you had when you got married, but I want you to think about your first Christmas tree. And then I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. All right, you got it in your mind? Here's the first question. Was your Christmas tree a real tree? Let me see hands on that. All right, a number of you. Was your first Christmas tree an artificial tree? See a number of hands there. How many people are just not sure at all? You can't really remember that far back. Yeah, there's a couple of you out there. Thank you for being honest. Uh, Many of us had real trees as our first Christmas tree. Some of us had artificial trees. Some of us had small trees. Some of us had large trees. I remember the first Christmas tree that Janet and I had when we got married. It was a hand-me-down from her parents. It was a small silver aluminum tree. I notice you're all so impressed with that picture. That is not the actual tree, but it was one that looked very much like that tree. And uh, we don't have pictures that go back that far to, to notice what it actually, the actual tree looked like. But that's what it was like. But it was special to us because it was our first tree. And I want to talk about what I'm calling the first Christmas tree quote, quote. That's the title of the message today, the first Christmas tree. Now, a lot of times in the Advent season, uh, I have referred to the first Christmas tree as being the cross. And in one sense, that's true. Because in Galatians 3.13, it says that Christ became a curse for us, for cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so in one sense, the cross is the first Christmas tree. But there is another tree, if you would, that precedes the cross, and that is the family tree and the genealogical tree that we find in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. Today we are beginning a five-part holiday series that we've entitled The Coming of the King. And primarily, as we go through these messages, we're going to find ourselves in Matthew chapter 1, and in Matthew chapter 2. So today we're beginning with Matthew chapter 1. Now as we begin to look at the gospel of Matthew, it's important for us to understand that in the four gospels we have in the New Testament, they each draw a unique portrait of Jesus. For example, in Matthew, Jesus is presented as God's Messiah King. In Luke, he is presented as God's servant Redeemer. In Mark, he is presented as the perfect son of man. And in John, 
Jesus is presented as the eternal Son of God. So all four of these Gospels have a unique portrait of Jesus, and we're going to be in Matthew, where obviously the thrust is portraying Jesus as God's Messiah King. Now, I'm not going to read through all 17 verses of the section we're going to be looking at today because there's an awful lot of Uzziah was the father of Jotham and Jotham was the father of Ahaz and so forth. But I do want to read some of the verses. I direct your attention to verse 1. It says, The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Then let your eyes drift down to verse 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who was called the Messiah. Verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Now, why is this chapter in the Gospel of Matthew? Well, remember, it's presenting Jesus as God's Messiah King. And so, this identifies him as being qualified to be Messiah King. And I want you to notice as he begins the record back up in verse 1, he says, it's the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. Why is that significant? Well, it takes us back to the Old Testament, to the Davidic covenant. And in the Davidic covenant, David was promised a throne and a descendant who would sit upon that throne as king. It's Jesus Messiah, his genealogy. He is the son of David. And then it says, he is the son of Abraham. That takes us back to the Old Testament again, to the Abrahamic covenant where Abraham had been promised that through his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Now, as we look at this first Christmas tree, it's important that we see that there are embedded in this genealogy two great truths, and we want to look at them this morning. They're very practical truths. The first truth that we'll find embedded here in this genealogy is the truth of God's sovereign providence. That means that God controls all of history, that nothing can thwart his plan, that nothing ever happens outside of his plan, that in every situation and in every circumstance, God is working his plan. And God's sovereign providence can bring us comfort as life happens to us. And we're going to see that in this genealogy. The second great truth that's embedded here is the truth of God's amazing grace. We define grace as God's generous, undeserved goodness to us. And His grace is always extended to undeserving people, people just like you and just like me. And as we look at this truth of God's amazing grace, it will be encouraging to us because All of us need His grace. All of us are tainted by sin and tainted by failure. Yes, even tainted by rebellion and disobedience before God, and so we need His grace. So those are the two truths we're going to find embedded in the first Christmas tree, quote, quote. And the first truth we want to look at is the truth of God's sovereign 
providence. And we're going to see three ways that God's sovereign providence is displayed in this genealogy. The first way is in preserving the male line for 2,000 years from Jesus to Abraham. Now, before we dive into that, I want to remind us that there are actually two genealogies in the Gospels. This one here in Matthew chapter 1, and there's another genealogy in Luke chapter 3. We believe that the genealogy in Matthew 1 is the genealogy of Joseph being tracked back to Abraham. Now, why would Matthew choose to do that? Well, he's presenting Jesus as the Messiah King. In Luke chapter 4, we believe it is the genealogy of Mary that is being tracked there back to Adam. Why does Luke choose to do that? Because Jesus is being presented as the servant redeemer of all of mankind. Two different genealogies, there's a lot of overlap in them. But what we have in Matthew chapter 1, we believe, is the legal royal line of the Messiah. In Luke chapter 3, we have the natural biological line of the Messiah. So there's a little bit of difference, and you're going to see some other differences as we look at the genealogy in Matthew 1. Now, we didn't take time to read down through all of this, but if we were, it says over and over again, as we said, for example, Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat was the father of Joram. Now, what's interesting is that little phrase that we have in our, in our translation was the father of is not really what it says in the original language. In the original language, it's just a verb, which is the word ganao, G-E-N-N-A-O. And ganao means to give birth to somebody or just to produce an offspring. And, and, and so here's what it's important for us to understand. In this list that we have before us from Matthew, the list is not always direct parentage father to son. Sometimes it's grandfather to grandson, and we're going to see that in a little bit later. But the idea was, you know, a grandfather can produce a grandson through the vehicle of his son who becomes the father of that son. So it's just important for us to understand that some of the relationships here are grandfather to grandson, and even some people are left out in the genealogy. Now, why is that? Well, Matthew chose to list this genealogy in three sets of 14. We saw that in verse 17. The generations from Abraham to David are how many? 14. David to the deportation, to the exile, 14. From the exile to Messiah, 14. Three sets of 14 generations are highlighted. From Abraham to David, from David to the exile, from the exile to Jesus. Now, why did he choose to do that? Why does he skip a father occasionally? Why are certain people missing from the genealogy? Well, most commentators believe that he chose to put it together like this as a memory device. You know, one of the things that they would often challenge you to do in those days, because you remember we didn't have tablets and other things, it was to memorize things. And so most commentators believe he had three sections of history that he wanted to highlight, and so he came up with 14 names that fit into those three sections. Easy to remember. Just memorize the 14, the 14, and the 14. Now, there's another reason why um, some believe that he chose the number of 14, and that has to do with the name of David. 
And David is key because he was the one who was given the promise of the throne that Messiah would one day rule on. And what is interesting in Hebrew is the original language of the Old Testament, if you go and look at it, is all consonants. There's no vowels written there. They later on added some vowels in there. But they could actually learn their language without the vowels. How would you like to have that experience? And in Hebrew, there are no numbers. You would just use the number of the alphabet to communicate a number. And so you have David, which is without A and I as the vowels, which is D, and then V, and then D. So the, the word or the letter D in Hebrew is the fourth letter of the alphabet, so that stands for four. The V or the Vav in Hebrew is the sixth letter of the alphabet. So if you take D, four, and Vav or V, and then you take D again, it's four plus six plus four equals 14. And just would be another way to emphasize the whole idea of the Messiah King being a son of David. So anyway, we're talking about preserving this male line for 2,000 years. Now, that doesn't sound like it would take much providence to do, but think about that. Preserving the male line from Abraham to Jesus 2,000 years. That takes some special providence from God. That's 20 centuries, men and women, where there was no break in the male line. Now, I'll just give you an illustration that we might understand from our culture. One of our most famous people in our history is Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln was born in 1809. Eventually, he got married, and he had four sons. His firstborn was Robert Todd. His secondborn was Edward, who died at the age of three. His thirdborn was William, who died at the age of 11. His fourthborn was Thomas, who died at the age of 18 before he could get married. So we have, in the male line of Abraham Lincoln, we have one son who ever got married, Robert Todd. Robert Todd had three children. Two of them were daughters one of them was a son. Interestingly enough, his son was named Abraham. And Abraham died at the age of 16 before he got married. So in the bloodline of Abraham Lincoln, it actually, the male line became extinct within 80 years. But in God's sovereign providence, the male bloodline from Abraham to Jesus was preserved for 2,000 years. It's a demonstration of God's sovereign providence. Second illustration of God's sovereign providence is rescuing baby Joash from the wicked queen. Some of you are going, Bruce, I have no idea what you're talking about here. And that's okay. That's one reason why we do Bible study and we investigate a little bit more. When we talk about baby Joash being rescued from the wicked queen. We go back to 2 Chronicles 22. I'll just tell you about it. In 2 Chronicles 22, there was this wicked queen by the name of Athaliah. And Athaliah made a decision. She was going to execute all the royal offspring in the line of the Messiah in Israel. 
She wanted to kill them all off. Now, who do you think was behind the motivation of giving Queen Athaliah that plan? Who would you guess? Satan himself was motivating Athaliah to execute all the royal offspring, wipe them off the face of the planet. In his mind, that would keep a Messiah from coming. But baby Joash, who was among those who was to be executed, his aunt, who by the way, her name was Jehoshabeth. So if you're looking for a female name, <laughs> Jehoshabeth is available, okay? You might want to consider that. But his aunt, Jehoshabeth, hid Joash in her bedroom for six years, saving him from execution by Queen Athaliah. That is an example of God's sovereign providence. God controls history. Every circumstance, in every circumstance, he is working his plan. So we see embedded in this genealogy the truth of God's sovereign providence. We've seen it in preserving the male line for 2,000 years. We've seen it in rescuing baby Joash from the wicked queen. Thirdly, we see it in overcoming the curse on Jeconiah. And again, you're going, Bruce, I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, I want you to look at verse 11. It says there that Josiah, Ganao, became the father of Jeconiah. Now, what you may not know is that Josiah here is the grandfather, and he produced a grandson, Jeconiah, because his son had a son. And Josiah is the grandfather, and the grandson is Jeconiah. In between them, Josiah's son, Jeconiah's father, was a guy by the name of Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim was an incredibly evil king in Israel. Jehoiakim was so evil that he decided that he would even burn the word of the Lord. Now, you understand, in those days, they had no printing press. There weren't hundreds of copies of the word of the Lord. And if you were to burn the word of the Lord, you would wipe out future generations from having exposure to the word of the Lord. And that's what Jehoiakim was like. He was a man who practiced extortion on a regular basis. He was a man who was guilty of multiple murderers. And I... It's not a surprise. God didn't take too kindly to Jehoiakim and his behavior. So in Jeremiah 22.30, here's what God says. Because of your behavior, Jehoiakim, none of the blood descendants of your son Jeconiah are ever going to sit on the throne of David. None of them are ever going to sit on the throne of David because of your behavior. Now, that poses humanly a little bit of a problem because here we're tracking Jesus back through to Abraham and he goes back through Jeconiah. That seems to create an insolvable problem. But remember, at all times, God is accomplishing his plan. His sovereign providence is always at work. And here's what God did. He qualifies Jesus through the bloodline of his mother. In other words, he couldn't be qualified through the bloodline of his father, but he's qualified through the bloodline of his mother. Look at verse 16. 
It says, Jacob was the father of Joseph. Joseph is the one who is really the stepfather to Jesus. Jacob was the father of Joseph. And notice he's, it doesn't say ganao here, that he begat somebody. He's described as the husband of Mary. And then it says, by whom Jesus was born. Who's that referring to? Well, in the original language, it's a feminine pronoun. It's referring back to Mary. Jacob was the father of Joseph. Joseph was the husband of Mary. And by Mary, Jesus was born, who was called the Messiah. That's part of the reason why there's a virgin birth. Sure, we didn't want sin being passed down through the male counterpart to Jesus. But part of it was God in his sovereign providence was going to make sure that Jesus was fully qualified in the bloodline to be Messiah. So you say, how does all that work? I'm not sure I quite follow. Here's the idea. As the adopted son, Jesus has the legal right to be king through his stepfather, Joseph. Remember, it's the legal royal line. He has the legal right to be king. But because he was connected back through Jeconiah, by blood, he could never serve as Messiah. But he has the biological right to be king through his birth mother, Mary. That is the sovereign providence of God. Now, I just want to freeze frame for a moment. As we're talking about the sovereign providence of God, and I want you to think about your own life. Think about those times in which life seems to be out of control. When life just appears to be random. You know, when you ask the question which I ask from time to time, God, are you still in control? I mean, look at what's happening. All the circumstances seem to be against me. You know, this last Friday, was, it, was, it was a day of complete frustration because I had my day planned out. I had all this work that I needed to get done. And, and it relate, work that was related to presenting this message to you today. And I couldn't believe the things that kept cropping up. I mean, this issue came up, this issue came up, that issue came up. This person needed to talk. I was on the phone. I was doing all this stuff all day long. And in fact, the whole day went away, and I didn't get any of what I had planned to get done. And I have to admit to you, you know, I'm thinking to myself, God, what in the world is going on here? Things are totally out. And then I'm thinking, wait a minute, what am I teaching on on Sunday? On the sovereign providence of God that we learned from the first Christmas tree? You know, and, and we just need to remember that, that things aren't random. They're not totally out of control. They're not just the circumstances pile up against us. And when things look dark, and maybe when we feel like there's no hope, we need to remember the truth is that Jesus is large and in charge 24 hours a day, right? That nothing happens outside God's plan. That in every circumstance, he is working his plan. And what he wants us to do is to trust him. What he wants us to do is turn to him, not away from him, and he wants us to rely on him. So the first great truth that is embedded in this genealogy is the truth of God's sovereign providence. There's a second great truth embedded here, and that is the truth of God's amazing grace. Remember, we've defined that as his generous, undeserved goodness. And his grace has always been and always will be extended to undeserving people just like you and just like me. And we see multiple expressions here of the truth of God's amazing grace. 
And you say, well, where do we find them? Well, the first place I see it is in the very person who is recording this genealogy. A guy named Matthew. Remember what his original name was? His original name was Levi. You remember what his chosen occupation was in life? Anybody remember? Tax collector. You say, well, that, does, that sounds kind of bad, but not that bad. Listen, that was a bad thing to be in the culture of that day. You were a Jew working for the hated Romans. And the way tax collectors worked in New Testament times is that Rome would give you a quota of tax that you had to collect from the people. But there was no salary. What you were allowed to do is to charge whatever you wanted to charge. And then the idea was that you could charge these exorbitant rates and then you could pay the quota to Rome, but you would pocket the difference. And so in Israel in those days, it was the tax collectors who were driving the escalades. It was the tax collectors who were living in the fancy houses. And the tax collectors were not exactly popular people. They were viewed as someone who was betraying the people of Israel to the Romans. They were, they were viewed as someone who was gouging the people of Israel so that they could have their escalades and their fancy houses and, and all, everything else. They had the, you know, the first big screen TVs in Israel. Tax collectors had them. They were viewed as triple traitors, people who were betraying the people, betraying their heritage, and betraying God. That's who's writing this book. And in Mark chapter 2, Levi, the tax collector, has Jesus walk by and he says to him, you, I want you in my inner circle. You know, I've often thought about this. Can you imagine that you have this special line to heaven and God says, you know what, I'm going to send the Messiah into Israel and you live in Israel. And here's what he says to you, you know, I want the Messiah. He's going to put together a band of people who will be his close followers. Who do you suggest might be included in that? You know, well, if you were asked that, the last person you're ever going to recommend is one of those dreaded tax collector guys. And yet, God's generous, undeserved goodness, his grace, comes to Levi, who later was renamed Matthew. You do realize that there were some in Israel who looked at Levi and Matthew and said, that guy is unredeemable. But God's grace transformed him. And he had the privilege of writing one of the gospel accounts, the gospel pictures of Jesus. Men and women, that's God's amazing grace. No other way to look at it. And here's what I believe at the bottom of my being. I believe that because of the grace that he experienced, he had an eye. Matthew had an eye for the grace of God. He, he saw the grace of God where some others didn't. Maybe Luke never did. In fact, there's some things that we find in the genealogy of Matthew that you'll never find in the genealogy of Luke. There's some addendums that he adds in, some information that he gives us, and I think it's because of God's amazing grace, and he saw examples of it. For, for example, for us, verse 3, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the legal royal line, and it says, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. 
Very seldom do you see any women mentioned in genealogies. That's just the way that they did it historically. But Matthew goes, well, you know, I don't want this to go by. I want to I want to I want to mention Tamar. I want to mention Tamar. You remember the story of, of Judah and Tamar at all? You know, Judah was Tamar's father-in-law. Tamar's husband died, and Judah, as he was supposed to do, promised certain financial support to her. But Tamar became a victim of Judah's deception and abandonment. And so she decided, I'm going to scheme away to get around this. And so you might remember that the story goes that Tamar decided to pretend that she was a prostitute standing along the road where Judah was coming. And he goes, oh, there's a prostitute. Let's have a little fun together. We call that when you have a father-in-law and a daughter-in-law coming together. We call that incest. And out of that incest came two twins, one of whom was named Perez, who is in the lineage of the Messiah King. Now that is God's amazing grace. God's grace is greater than sin and bad choices. Another illustration of the grace of God, verse 5. Solomon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. You remember the story of Rahab. You know, she was a Canaanite woman. You remember what her chosen vocation was? Anybody remember Rahab? What was her vocation? She was a prostitute. She was a prostitute. Now, she came to know Yahweh God. And eventually she was married and she had a son by the name of Boaz. And guess what? This Canaanite prostitute's son, Boaz, is in the lineage of the Messiah. You know, God's grace is amazing and it is greater than sordid sin. God's amazing grace. Another illustration of this is found in the same verse. He became the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. There's another woman of really questionable background being mentioned here. You know her, her background, her story? She was a Moabite. You, you know, you start to see you have the Canaanites and the Moabites, And we're going to see in a minute, you have someone who's married to a Hittite. Remember all the ites? They were the what of Israel? The enemies of Israel. And so you have Ruth, who is formerly an idol-worshiping Moabite, and she comes to know God, and then her son that is born, Obed, is in the lineage of Messiah King. It's God's amazing grace. God's grace is greater than even the legacy of a very dark background. And then you go on to verse 6. See, these are just illustrations of God's grace that Matthew brings out that Luke doesn't. Verse 6, Jesse was the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by, oh, here we go again, Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now we're bringing up the most shocking scandal in all of the Old Testament, how the king of Israel takes another man's wife and ultimately has a fatal cover-up of the death of her husband. And the son of the two of them is in the lineage of the Messiah King. God's grace is greater than even the worst mistakes anybody can make. Now, those are just a few examples. There's a whole more than just those four. 
I mean, you look through this whole list of names. I mean, you look at David himself. He was an adulterer and a murderer. You look at Abraham. He was a liar. You look at Jacob. He was a deceiver. In fact, the whole family tree here is pregnant with flawed people. But all these people I've mentioned were transformed by God's grace. What does that mean for us? It means that God takes flawed people and he can change them and he can use them. It's God's amazing grace. You know, there's a hymn we used to sing a number of years ago called Marvelous Grace. I love the words. Here's part of the words. Grace, grace, God's grace. And I love this phrase, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Man, that's so beautiful. And then this line, grace, I just love this line, grace that is greater than all our sin. That's God's amazing grace. It goes on to say marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. And then there's this amazing phrase, freely bestowed. Not earned, freely bestowed on all who believe. See, his grace is extended to undeserving people just like you and just like me. And it's not something that we earn, we work to earn. It's freely bestowed on all who believe. You know, the most unique thing about the Bible is that it teaches that salvation, forgiveness from God, is a free gift. What? Are, are you kidding me? You know, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. What we earn because of our sin and rebellion before God is death. But then it goes on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That's just an astonishing statement. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. See, what what the problem is, men and women, we want to add to his grace. We want to do our part. There's certain things we need to do, certain practices we need to have, things we need. We want to add to his grace to impress God in some way. But here's the problem with that. It doesn't work that way in the Bible world. If you haven't yet underlined Romans eleven six 6 in your Bible, you need to do that if you underline in your Bible. This is a verse we all need to understand. It says, for it is by grace. If it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer Grace. Now, again, what do we want to do? We want to take the grace of God that was in the work of Christ and we want to add to it. I want to add my works to it in some way. But here's what happens when we try to add our works to His grace, there's a spiritual chemical reaction that occurs that negates the grace. Only faith can keep grace grace. That's why it is freely bestowed on all who believe. That is God's amazing grace. Now, before we walk away from what we've been looking at, I want us to talk about two life responses that we can have. 
Here's the first one. The first life response is to receive his grace by faith. And men and women, if you've never come to know Jesus Christ, if you've never become a possessor of eternal life, if you've never experienced forgiveness with God, you can receive his grace by faith. What does that mean? That really means we come to him with an open hand to receive. It's not about what we think we can achieve. It's coming to him with an open hand because he wants to give to us the free gift of eternal life. The last book of the Bible, the book of the Revelation, chapter number 22, verse 17, says, let the one who is thirsty, could it be that you're spiritually thirsty? You want to know that God accepts you? You want to know that you're forgiven? You want to know that you have eternal life? By the way, knowing you're forgiven is the most wonderful thing in all of the world. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life, and here's this most beautiful phrase, without cost. It's an open hand. It's receiving his grace. Even if there's sordid sin in our past, even if there's just dysfunction in our past, even if there's been rebellion in our past, his grace can give us new purpose and new life. So if you've never done it, you don't have to go anywhere special to do it. You can receive his grace by faith. That means you just hold your hand out and he will give you the free gift of eternal life. If you just believe in it, you trust in it, you rest in it, you count it to be true. It's that simple. So the first life response is to receive his grace by faith. The second life response is to praise him for his grace. And men and women, do you know that's really what Christmas is all about? That's why we have it. It's praising him for his grace for the grace of sending his son, for the grace of sending his son who was so righteous he could take your sins and mine and put them on himself, die for them, and then rise again triumphant from the dead. That's what Christmas is all about, praising him for his grace. And we need to do that during this time of year. And men and women, that is the story of the first Christmas tree. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for your word. It's so alive, it's so powerful, it's so deep, it's so profound. May these truths we've looked at today of your sovereign providence be an encouragement to us and especially your amazing grace, your amazing grace, how sweet the sound it is. May we praise you during these weeks for your grace to us. That's what Christmas is really all about. And as we do that, it's going to bring joy deep in our heart. May we experience that joy to the honor of Christ, and we pray in his name. Amen. Amen.